0: Welcome to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. My name's Owen Kelly, and I'm sitting here in Helsinki. And today we're not joined by Sophie Hope, who is not sitting in London. Sophie's gone to Zagreb for a conference or a presentation that I think I'm supposed to know about, but in fact escapes me completely. However, I do know that she's gone there with her audio recorder and is intending to record something... For broadcast later in this podcast series, so I'm assuming that whatever she's doing in Zagreb has something to do with conversations about cultural democracy. Having said all that, I actually met Sophie in person the other day in Newcastle, England, where we were both attending a symposium called Community Arts Practices and Processes of Production at the BNXNU Institute. The conference was held uh, held in B, uh, Baltic 39 on Monday the 28th of October 2019. This symposium was organised by uh, Andrea Phillips and Jason E. Bowman. It had to do with the opening gambits in a longer term research project. And what had happened was that Andrea and Jason had brought together a group of about 12 people who talked about their practices and processes in historical terms. And I think the idea was that our conversations would fill out the background in a way that enabled Andrea and Jason to think about a longer-term research project. If I sound unclear about this, that's because I am. However, the afternoon itself, the symposium, was extremely interesting, since it contained a number of people who I'd not met for several decades, and a number of people I'd met more recently. And everybody had been asked to bring an artefact, and to talk for five or ten minutes about that artefact and people had brought along a variety of material that I had, in some cases, not seen since the mid-1980s. Graham Rigby and Ros Rigby were both there, and Graham had brought along some old editions of conference reports, Association of Community Arts conference reports from the 1980s. There was Principles and Practice, and at least one other one. Ros had brought along old copies of another standard some of which I had simply not seen since they were published. These were both interesting to me in several ways. Firstly, I think that having a chance to read through them reminded me of how blurred and smoothed down the history of community art seems from a distance so that the current thoughts as expressed in previous episodes of this, of this podcast, the current, episode, the current th- feelings about community arts in the 80s sees a particular trajectory. Community artists divided into pragmatic practitioners and aloof theorists, and these two groups collided in 1986 at the Sheffield Conference, after which the movement suffered a calamitous split and eventually fell to pieces several years later. Looking through the copies of another standard, and indeed through principles and practice and the other conference reports, it was quite clear to me that the real train of events was much, much, much more complex and that the roles of the individuals who are normally cited as being on one side or the other were in fact much more nuanced. There probably weren't any practitioners who didn't think about theory and there weren't any theorists who didn't practice diligently and with considerable effect. These are labels are applied retrospectively and serve to place a narrative in stone, a narrative which is somewhere between partial and simply untrue. I asked Roz if she could digitise these or somehow make available these copies of another standard, and she told me that, in fact, some of them are already available, that Francoise Matarosso, who's talked on this podcast series before, in fact did take away numbers of these, borrow them, digitise them, and place them on his website, A Restless Art. I shall go away and try and dig these out and place the links to this on the Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse website. Sophie had an artefact, which again I hadn't seen for 30 years or Thereabouts. And in fact, I'm, I was curious as to where she'd got it since she wasn't around collecting these things 30 years ago. She'd brought along a Comedia book called What a Way to Run a Railroad. Now, Comedia was an independent publishing house that, amongst other things, published Community Art and the State and the 1986 Manifesto. But What a Way to Run a Railroad differs from those in that the three founders of Comedia... Charles Landry, Dave Morley and Russell Southwood wrote the book themselves. It's a book that analyses what they claim to be a history of radical failure in terms of left publishing and left cultural production. And it's a, I remember it at the time as a very interesting read and just scanning through it briefly when Sophie had placed it down on the table I thought it still holds out as a very interesting read. Sophie may discuss that in a, in a subsequent episode of this podcast. And in fact, I might try and get Russell Southwood to join us for that discussion, since I think he may have something interesting to say about that. My artefact was something called the Contagious Tapes Manual or the Contagious Tapes Model, depending on how you see it. And that is a report from a project that Medium Wave initiated and set off as a semi-autonomous project. The manual is written by Hanya Jan Kevin Nestling and me, who were the three members of Medium Wave at the point the manual was written. Dermot Killip had left and Henry Isles had yet to join. And Annie B was not yet there either. So, the contagious manual... I'd come across it at home, and I hadn't known I'd got it. I'd been intending to take another artefact altogether. I'd been intending to take some pinhole f- photographs that were part of medium-wave's practice and that I knew I had in an envelope, in a box. And when I opened the box, I discovered I also had this Contagious Tapes manual, which I was completely surprised by. So I sat and read through it, and I thought, this is actually more interesting than the, as a discussion point than the pinhole photographs that I was going to take. So what is contagious and why do I think it's interesting? Or why does it at least interest me whether you think it's interesting or not? We had been working at Medium Wave with local musicians amongst other groups. And this was the early 80s and the Walkman had become fashionable. It had not been invented that long and it had suddenly become fashionable. And record manufacturers had taken a interest in releasing records on cassette and the idea of cassette singles had become trendy and we were only a few years away from bow wow wow and the c30 c60 c90 go cassette single so the idea of cassette singles was in the air and tascam had produced a Porter studio And for those of you who don't know or don't remember what the Porter Studio was, it was a cassette recorder. It cost about £500, and the cassette recorder was a four-track studio. It used standard audio cassettes, yet it ran both sides the same way. In other words, instead of running a stereo track on side A, followed by a stereo track on side B, it ran the four tracks one way, giving you a four-track tape recorder. It had a built-in mixer, it had built-in EQ, and it was a portable recording studio for £500. Now, it wasn't state-of-the-art, if by state-of-the-art we mean the kind of equipment that Pink Floyd had access to in the 1980s, but it was perfectly capable, technically, of producing the same kind of sound quality that was available to, for example, Buddy Holly or Chuck Berry when they made their iconic rock and roll records, and the same kind of sound quality that was available to the Beatles for their first one or two or possibly three albums. If one was not a technological fetishist, it was therefore safe to say that you could use a porter studio to produce releasable quality music. At Medium Wave, we were interested in these kind of innovations and the possibility for liberating people from existing structures. We we bought Sinclair Spectrums, for example. We had two Sinclair Spectrums to see what the fuss was about the new portable mini-computers, personal computers. We also bought Atari STs when they came out in order to see what potential they had for community use. So... Since we had a track record of doing this, we bought a porter studio and we invited a group of local musicians to form a collective, which we called Contagious, Contagious Tapes. Now, the manual, which Hanya, Kevin and I wrote, starts with a section called Contagious, What It's For. And to give some of the background, I will read some of that. I might also add before I do that this is a legitimate 1980s, publication that seems to have been typewritten and then Xeroxed from its typewritten state. Contagious, what is it for? In The State in Capitalist Society, Ralph Miliband argues that, quote, "...the agencies of communication, and notably the mass media, are, in reality, and the expression of dissident views notwithstanding, a crucial element in the legitimation of capitalist society." Freedom of expression is not thereby rendered meaningless, but that freedom has to be set in the real economic and political context of these societies. And in that context, the free expression of ideas and opinions mainly means the free expression of ideas and opinions which are helpful to the prevailing system of power and privilege. We go on to say, We believe that this is not merely the result of the agencies of communication being in the control of one group of people, rather than in the control of another group, although this fact is not without important consequences. Rather, the agencies of communication have been so structured that their very organisation reflects and serves to legitimise the prevailing system of power and privilege. This occurs in three separate but connected ways. Firstly, the agencies of communication draw from and reflect a particular consensus view of society, which is presented as a natural common sense view, an arena within which different opinions are possible, but about which there can only be one rational view. This view, which is directly descended from the prevailing ideology of colonial imperialism, states flatly that cultural values fall naturally into a hierarchy a great tradition in which the rare and beautiful flowers in the garden need constant nourishment to protect them from the mass of predatory weeds. This serves to legitimise the activities and pleasures of one class at the expense of the activities and pleasures of other classes while obscuring the fact that this process is occurring. Secondly, the roles of producer and consumer have been separated as far as possible. This has occurred through the separate marketing of professional and amateur equipment in all areas of leisure including the arts and the parallel development of separate forms of criticism and discussion for the professional and amateur arts. Amateurs do not get their plays or films reviewed nor their work taken seriously. Instead they are encouraged to imitate what is happening in the professional arts to reproduce the effects of professionalised arts, without the necessary resources. This process serves to underwrite the idea that there is indeed a natural hierarchy of values, of creativity and of importance, and that this hierarchy originates in the unfettered minds of a few divinely inspired geniuses. Thirdly, the agencies of communication have been developed in such a way that they all have prohibitively high entry costs. It is simply not possible for most people to release a record, publish a book, or start a newspaper. Or at least it's not possible for them to do it in a way that is recognizably professional. By professional, we are not referring to the quality of a work, but to the appearance it exhibits, the places to which it is able to gain access, and the consensus of seriousness and respect which it is able to attract. High entry costs have been achieved by a mixture of direct and indirect licensing and regulation, and by the propagation of the idea that state-of-the-art technology is a value in its own right. Thus, the television companies have created the notion of a broadcasting standard for material which they transmit, which effectively limits those who can submit material for broadcasting and enables this limitation of access to be discussed as an unfortunate but value-free technological flaw in the system. Similarly, the recording industry has insisted on the benefits of ever-newer technology, even though these benefits are not necessarily apparent on the kind of audio equipment which the great majority of people own. It thus rejects, as substandard, outmoded, and except for rare and particular cases, unprofessional, the kind of equipment such as Porter Studios, which is capable of recording music to at least the same standards as the equipment available to Buddy Holly. They do this while continuing, for reasons of profit, to issue Buddy Holly's recordings. We believe that the structure of the agencies of communication is profoundly anti-democratic and anti-socialist, and would remain so no matter which party, which class, or which professional group was in nominal control. Not merely the messages that these agencies currently transmit, which, as Ralph Millibrand has correctly pointed out, favour the prevailing systems of power and privilege, but also their structures and the assumptions which underpin their structures must be challenged. Contagious is an attempt to establish one specific mode of organisation for producing and distributing music, which we believe can act as a model for challenging the structures of the agencies of communication. The extent to which it can succeed in that challenge depends on the extent to which this model is taken up and developed. Of one thing we are certain. Contagious will only work as part of a growing network. It will achieve nothing if it remains merely an interesting aberration. So that's the manifesto part of the manual. It then has a section called how it works which I won't read out in its entirety. But basically, it outlines Contagious as an association which exists for the purpose of allowing its members to produce and distribute music for which they've created and to help create the circumstances in which that music can have an active role in the sustenance and development of a decentralised, locally-centred culture. So, Contagious was set up as a collective and it was set up with a very low entry cost, We used some of the money we received from Greater London Arts to purchase this equipment, and at the end of the Contagious manual, there is a list of the equipment that we purchased so that other people could start a similar organisation. It's worth noting that the total cost for setting up the studio for Contagious was £2,596. The sound equipment we bought cost 700 pounds approximately and consisted of Roland equipment, a microcomposer, a synthesizer, a bassline and a drummatics. The recording equipment for the studio cost 1400 pounds and consisted of the Porter studio, an effects rack with reverb, digital delay, flanges etc, a patch bay and a mixer. We had mastering equipment for mastering the cassettes. That cost £290, although in the end, when the collective got going, we bought 20 cassette decks so you could do instantaneous mastering and production in batches of 20. Leaving that second set out, the whole cost, as I said, was £2,596. Now, Contagious was intended as a model, as the manifesto part suggested, and because of this, we deliberately set the association up with 20 members. We said that if 20 members banded together with no funding, each member would have to pay £130, plus very modest ongoing costs, to become a member of an entirely self-funding collective. We were also quite clear that Contagious wasn't an open access project. We deliberately set it up like this. To quote, it says, "...we have chosen to deliberately limit Contagious membership to approximately 20." We believe this is about the maximum number of members who can gain access to the equipment on the kind of unrestricted regular basis that the association exists to provide. We believe that this is a more useful path to pursue than the always doomed attempt to provide comprehensive open access facilities for an unlimited amount of people. For example, Sheffield have been contemplating building a Community 24-track recording studio which they have estimated, will cost approximately £750,000. It will also contain large revenue implications. It will furthermore create a new scarce resource in Sheffield called Community Recording Time, which groups will fight over and which from time to time will need to be prioritised in order to prevent disadvantaged groups being further disadvantaged. The same amount of money would provide in the region of 300 associations in Sheffield, like Contagious, each able to give up to 20 members as much recording time as they wanted every month. These members could be individuals or they could be bands. So, in theory, up to 600 bands could be given unlimited recording time for the price of the capital costs of one state-of-the-art community recording studio. Fact, there probably aren't 6,000 bands in Sheffield but we can guarantee there will certainly be more bands than there will be community studio time. So the point of Contagious, as it goes on to make clear, wasn't to encourage as many people as possible to use the association, but to set the association up as a beacon and to encourage as many people as possible to come together to form similar associations. In order to make this possible, the third part of the manual goes on to actually look at the fourth part of the manual, rather. The third part looks at distribution and talks about how we would would want to set up distribution networks, partly using things like Rough Trade, who did indeed distribute Contagious tapes, but also building up our own postal networks. And then the fourth part is a complete draft constitution for Contagious, which has been set up not so much for Contagious itself, but for other groups who may read the Manifesto, the manual. And in order to make this possible, we did considerable research into possible formal arrangements and decided finally to base the Constitution of Contagious on the Constitution of the Camden Play Centres Association, which served as a template for a number of other similar associations. So the manual therefore sets up not just Contagious itself, but also sets up a model, which we hoped would be taken up by other groups. Contagious in the end ran for four years. It produced 36 to 38 cassettes, depending how you count them. Numbers of different performers, poets, bands, musical groups of one sort and another passed through Contagious and we estimated, although exact figures were never available because of the way Contagious worked, we estimated that altogether Contagious sold between fourteen and 18,000 cassettes over that period. The smallest number of cassettes sold by any single production was I think in single figures. The largest number of cassettes sold was something like just over a thousand and a number of cassettes sold over 500 including the one that we produced for the miners strike called a miners collection. Why do I think this is interesting? Firstly it was taken up by some other groups. Obviously a cursory glance at history reveals that the music industry wasn't shaken, rocked and finally brought to collapse by models based around Contagious. So, in that sense, it didn't work. On the other hand, it was taken up by other groups, and it did work, and it did lead to other collectives also releasing cassettes. Technology moved on, the Porter Studio grew. It wasn't long after that that the Atari ST, which we had bought got a very early version of a DOR, a digital audio workstation. A very, very primitive version of that was available. So at that point, not long after this, synthesizers began using MIDI. Computers began acting as recording studios. The process of recording became digitized in a way that also lowered the entry costs. So we moved into the late 80s, early 90s uh, bedroom recording which led into the kind of dance music that people make at home. So to some extent, contagious could only ever have been a temporary phenomenon. It was dependent in part on the current state of technology and as technology developed, the need for it, as indeed for the the need for quite a lot of media-based community arts production, either changed, mutated, or disappeared. I find the Contagious interesting, looking back on it, because it was a curious mixture of theory and practice. Yes, it had a manifesto at the start, so it was quite clear we were doing this for a purpose, and we had spent a long time, possibly too long, thinking through its objectives and how it might meet them. It also contains some boring constitutional stuff, which we believe to be important if groups were to actually follow this and use this as a blueprint. And thirdly, it contains very practical items, shopping lists and also a list of the cassettes produced. In this, it ties back exactly into what I was talking about 20 minutes ago. The difference between theory and practice, between theorists and practitioners is largely illusionary and a matter of looking back from a long distance and a high vantage point. On the ground, at the time, the community art movement mixed theory and practice with a different amount of concentration on one and concentration on the other, and sometimes, as with Contagious, with an equal mix of both. Contagious, in the time it existed, moved on not just from distributing cassettes. We thought, how can we actually do this business with local culture? So we set up what was initially a monthly and for some time a fortnightly live event at a pub at Loughborough Junction. And this series of live events both promoted Contagious and other local bands and served as an anchor point. And also we had what wasn't called then and would be called now a pop-up shop in the pub during the live events. All of this worked together and all of this featured our theoretical thinking, acting in practice. And I'm not suggesting that we were somehow models of, of property in this, rather the opposite. I'm suggesting this is by and large how the community art movement actually worked in the 1980s. And the one thing I got from the Community Arts Practices and Processes of Production seminar in Newcastle on October the 28th was precisely this, a chance to look again and realise how rich and complex the actual practices were, and how richly they tied together with the theories, the cultural theories, the political theories that were being developed at the time. That's all I wanted to say for this episode. Let's stop there. I'm Owen Kelly. You've been listening to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. You can find out more at our website, meow.net, M-I-A-A-W dot net. That's M-I-A-A-W, which, not coincidentally, is a shortcut for Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. See you all in two weeks. Thank you. That's all for now.